We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Away we go, episode 178 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, November 1st, 2021. Yes, a new month is upon us, and thank God that a new month is upon us because we now can officially bury the month of October 2021 as Washington football team fans, we now can officially put away the month of October 2021 as Washington football team fans. My friends, we can officially now say that this just concluded month of October 2021 was quite possibly the worst month in the history of the team that we know right now anyway as the Washington football team. Trust me, that is not a hot take. That is a sane, fact-based, totally rational, and totally fair take. I'll explain further next segment during the front five for the latest Washington football team loss on which we must chew. Uh, Washington now 2-6, and six, a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. On Halloween, you know, I missed trick-or-treating with my kids for that abortion of a game. Shame on me. I know. I should have known better. That's a bad job on my part. That's a Chris Blewett-like job on my part, right? I am the Chris Blewett of fathers here. Yes, Chris Blewett. Oh, I'll be getting to him and much more next segment during the front five. My five biggest takeaways on the Washington football team off the game, including what Washington now must do with Tuesday's 4 p.m. Eastern NFL trade deadline looming. Washington, my friends, needs to shift into sell mode. Washington needs to call the Nationals. Maybe Mike Rizzo 
can handle the Washington football team as we approach this NFL trade deadline. Will Washington be the seller that Washington should be? Probably not, okay? Probably not. But that doesn't mean that that isn't the right way to go. So next segment, the front five, you'll hear all of the key audio from Ron Rivera's post-game press conference on Sunday evening. I'll then have lots more for you on the Washington football team beyond those thoughts and the front five. And I will have some happy talk on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast for you because we like being happy on this show. We like being shiny, happy people like the R.E.M. song from back in the day. Uh, The Wizards, they're shiny, happy people right now. They're tied for first in the Eastern Conference. Yes, our Wizards are tied for first in the East. I'll be talking some Wizards later in the show. I'll give you a proper college football segment of a college football week nine that ended up featuring Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Navy all winning. Who'd have thunk that given the season's that those three teams have been having. And the team that had been the best of the bunch, Virginia, it lost over the weekend and may have lost starting quarterback Brendan Armstrong. Although what a game that was for the Cavaliers, a 66-49 loss at number 25 BYU late night on Saturday night. Lots to get to from the college football weekend. Uh, The Capitals, they have begun their season with an eight-game point streak. We'll be talking some caps late in the show. So you see, it's not all gloom and doom uh, on this podcast. It's just gloom and doom with our football team. Uh, Friendly reminder, when you have 30 seconds to kill, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give this podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write just like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. Those things help out a lot. Uh, You can hit pause on your iPhone or iPad right now and do those things. I do read the reviews. I appreciate all of them. And uh, I thank you guys very much for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Kimberly Davidson on Ron Rivera. (laughs) Writes Kimberly, when will Rivera and his GM posse that decided to pull off this kicking debacle, take the rap for at least one loss. Again, how many tackles did Jamin Davis make? So stupid taking an SEC first rounder. The SEC East is the JV League. Jamin Davis should have been a third rounder at best. Taylor Heineke played like a good rookie. Rather have him than Teddy Bridgewater. We have one receiver and a bunch of Rivera and company leftovers. The guy is making the best out of chump soup. And the guy I'm assuming Kimberly is referring to there is Taylor Heineke. Concludes Kimberly, would like to see the DC sports community start to push back on Rivera. Well, thank you for the email, Kimberly. I hear you. Uh, The D.C. sports community, judging by the feedback that I get, already is pushing back on Ron Rivera. Uh, Email from Rob on the Washington football team writes, Rob, here is a bright spot. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers lost because they were looking ahead to facing Taylor Heineke and Washington in the playoff rematch. Yes, the reigning defending Super Bowl champion Bucs did lose on Sunday. Lost at the New Orleans Saints 36-27. So yeah, uh, Washington has that going forward, I suppose. Uh, Continues, Rob. Here's the downside. We have no shot at getting the number one draft pick All of that aside, did we lose because of Taylor Heineke? I'm beginning to think we are losing because of the coaching staff. Well, Rob, Washington is losing at least in part because of the coaching staff. I think that's uh, a sane and sober thing to say. You can't argue that Washington's coaching staff 
is doing a great job, not with a record of two and six, not with a point differential of minus 71. You know, a lot of what's happening here with Washington is yes on the players, but you can't say that all of this is on the players, especially on defense, okay? There has not been a maximizing of the talent, certainly on defense. That's for darn sure. Uh, Email from Brent on the Washington football team writes, Brent, personally, I'm glad we got gifted that last possession by the also awful Broncos. That debacle of a drive slammed the door on Taylor Heineke for even the graspiest of graspers that might have blamed just the pathetic field goal unit for that game. Bring on the Fitz magic, a four-win season, and a top-five pick. Stacked. Well, Brent, the problem is that Ryan Fitzpatrick may never be ready to play again this season. We don't know. Uh, I think if Fitzpatrick was ready to play, he may already be playing. But Ryan Fitzpatrick remains on the reserve injured list with the right hip subluxation suffered in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one. And his recovery does not seem to be going uh, swimmingly, shall we say, According to the report from NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com, now two Sunday mornings ago, October 24th, Fitzpatrick was, quote, still weeks away from returning, end quote, and was, quote, still on crutches around the facility. Another sign that his comeback is not close, end quote. And remember, Ron last week said that Fitzpatrick wasn't going to even undergo another MRI exam until two weeks from then. So I guess that would be one week from where we're at right now, more or less. So yeah, I mean, we're looking at at least mid-November for a Ryan Fitzpatrick return, probably more realistically late November at least. And, you know, if he's not ready by then and you're already into December and Washington season is all but done, what's the point exactly at that point for Fitzpatrick to come back and play this season? We don't know. We'll see. Fitzpatrick's health remains in question, just like the health of the Washington football team remains in question. However, don't ever let your health be in question. And when it comes to the health of your skin, always know that you can contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The health of your skin matters. Skin cancer is, in fact, the most common of all cancers. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs Surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a big listener of this podcast. And operating under the direction of Dr. Verghese is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis, and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301-396-3401, or visit Mid-Atlantic Skin. That's midatlanticskin.com.
Mid-AtlanticSkinSurgery.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, no time to waste. Time now for the front five. My five biggest takeaways off the Washington football team falling to two and six with a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. Washington now has lost four consecutive games. So takeaway number one, the month of October 2021 goes down as one of the worst in Washington football history. I know that that sounds like an over-the-top statement. I know that that sounds like hyperbole. It is not hyperbole. It is what I like to call the truth. It was fitting that this loss at the Broncos happened on Halloween, happened on October 31st, because this was a most appropriate exclamation mark to a horror show of a month for the team currently known as the Washington football team. Take a step back and consider everything that happened with the Washington football team in the month of October 2021. You start with just the football, okay? Washington in the month of October 2021 went 1-4 and four in actual games. Yes, Washington did actually win a game in the month of October 2021. The win at the Atlanta Falcons in week four happened on October 3rd that 34-30 victory. But since then, four consecutive losses for Washington. Uh, Washington in October 2021 dealt with an offense that was largely ineffective and was ravaged by injury. Dealt with a defense that continued to underperform. Dealt with a change at kicker that resulted in the new kicker having three of his first five field goal attempts for Washington blocked. You can't make this stuff up. And that's just the football. We on October 4th, 2021, the day after that aforementioned Washington win, a come-from-behind win, remember, at the Falcons, learned that Washington Director of Sports Medicine and Head Athletic Trainer Ryan Vermillion had been placed on administrative leave. Why? Well, he was placed on administrative leave for what the team called an ongoing criminal investigation unrelated to the team. Uh, This was due to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, otherwise known as La DEA, if you watch Narcos, and the Loudoun County Sheriff's Department on October 1st, having conducted searches at Washington's practice facility and at Vermillion's residence. Yes, the feds raided Washington's practice facility on the first day of the month from hell, also known as October 2021. The Washington Post on October 13th reported that lawyers representing the Washington football team this past February had offered a financial settlement in exchange for the silence of former female team employees who alleged that they were sexually harassed while working for the team. Uh, This has come to be known as the hush money report from the Post in the month from hell, also known as October 2021. Uh, This allegation was according to two former team employees, Emily Applegate, a former marketing coordinator, and Megan Imbert, a former producer in the team's broadcast department. We, in October 2021, had the reporting of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times of leaked emails from Bruce Allen, 
during his time as a Washington executive. The emails, of course, led to the resignation of John Gruden as Las Vegas Raiders head coach and led to the reigniting of Washington's workplace misconduct scandal. The scandal had essentially been over, okay? I mean, it wasn't over in the minds of the victims, but the scandal was over in the minds of, like, the media. I mean, it certainly wasn't getting much attention. Now, all of a sudden, the scandal has caught fire again. Uh, We, on October 21st, had the breaking news of Congress having questions about Washington's workplace culture scandal. Representative Carolyn V. Maloney, chairwoman of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, and Representative Raja Krishnamurthy, chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, on October 21st sent a letter to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell requesting documents and information regarding the Washington football team's hostile workplace culture and the NFL's handling of this matter. We, on October 17th, Before and during Washington's 31-13 loss to the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field during Washington's annual alumni homecoming weekend, uh, had the team, quote, honoring, end quote, Sean Taylor. This included Washington retiring Sean's number 21 jersey. Washington, of course, incredibly did not announce that the team was retiring Sean's number 21 at this game until three days prior to the game, Thursday morning, October 14th. Also on October 17th was Washington staging a photo op for Sean's family outside of FedEx Field in front of a bunch of portable toilets. Yes, that happened. So in the month of October 2021, you had Washington going one and four, You had Washington dealing with all kinds of football issues. You had the Ryan Vermillion scandal. You had the Washington Post hush money report. You had the leaked Bruce Allen emails. You had congressional involvement in the resurrected Washington workplace misconduct scandal. And you had the Washington football team completely mangling the, quote, honoring, end quote, of Sean Taylor. There have been plenty of other oh-so-very-bad months in Washington football history. You know, July 2020 comes to mind. But it's hard to think of many, if any, worse months in Washington football history than this, thankfully, now-completed month of October 2021. If you can think of a worse month, let me know. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I mean, sure, you could say something like November 2007 because Sean Taylor died. You know, somebody lost his life that month relating to the team. So, okay, I understand that. But in terms of an accumulation of occurrences, I cannot recall another month like this just concluded month of October 2021 for the Washington football team. Takeaway number two, the Washington football team needs to aggressively sell players on expiring contracts regarding Tuesday's NFL trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern. The trade deadline is a coming, okay? Things are going to have to move quickly if Washington is going to do this. I have serious doubts whether Washington will do this, but that doesn't mean that Washington shouldn't do this. Just because the team is unlikely to do this doesn't mean that I'm not going to advocate for the team doing this. So Washington at two and six with a minus 71 point differential now is at a point at which you say the season is essentially over from a postseason 
contending standpoint, okay? The NFC East this season is not like the NFC East last season. A 7-9 team is not going to win the NFC East this season, and I know there are 17 regular season games now. So whatever you want to call the equivalent of 7-9, and nine, uh, that's not happening in terms of the record for the team that wins the NFC East this season. Not with the season that the Dallas Cowboys are having, especially with the Cowboys now at 6-1 and one off the 2016 win at the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday Night Football. Yes, I know that anything is possible. And no, I'm not suggesting that Washington should like stop trying in games. But what I am saying is that Washington's front office, which of course is run by the head coach, uh, now needs to pivot and not devote any further resources to this season. I have no idea if any of Washington's players on expiring contracts have true trade value. And no, I wouldn't trade away anyone who I want to keep beyond this season. So for instance, Tim Settle is on an expiring contract. I'm not necessarily advocating for Washington to trade Tim Settle, but the following Washington players are on expiring contracts and should be aggressively shopped. And the reason that I'm focusing on players on expiring contracts quite simply is these guys can leave you this offseason via free agency, and you can get nothing back. I mean, I know you have compensatory picks, but remember, compensatory picks are based not just on who you lose, but who you sign in free agency. And compensatory picks also depend on the contracts that players sign. So you can't just say, well, we'll just get a comp pick for that guy. You don't know if you're going to get a comp pick for that guy. So the following Washington players are on expiring contracts, and to me, should be aggressively shopped prior to to this Tuesday's NFL trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Brandon Sheriff, Charles Leno Jr., Cornelius Lucas, J.D. McKissick, Ricky Seals-Jones, DeAndre Carter, Bobby McCain. Again, it may be that nobody on that list has any real trade value. I understand that, okay? I don't know, though, that we can say with certainty that all of those guys have zero trade value, okay? In fact, I don't think that that's the case, all right? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Predicting trade value in the NFL is basically impossible. Uh, Also, obviously, in the case of Fitzpatrick, in the case of Sheriff, health is a factor. But I could see a contending team being interested in, say, Fitzpatrick as a QB2, should that team believe that Fitzpatrick will be healthy at some point in November. Again, who knows? But the point is that Washington needs to start thinking about next season, okay? Needs to start thinking about the future, not the present. Operation 2022 is upon us. Get whatever draft picks you can get for any of these guys, all of whom, again, can leave you after this season via free agency. And be smart about where you are as a franchise right now. Washington is 2-6 and six with a minus 71 point differential, okay? I'm going to keep saying that because those things matter. Minus 71, that is the third worst point differential in the NFC. That's where Washington is. This is a bad team. This is a rebuilding team. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference on Sunday evening, on where he feels Washington is right now. I think this team's still trying to search and find itself more than anything else. You know, um, that's where we are. Yeah, well, uh, keep looking. Uh, Ron then got asked how disappointing it is for him to say what he just said eight games into this season. Um, 
don't know if it's disappointing to say it. I, I think it's the truth. You know, I mean, we are where we are. And as I've said to you guys before, we're a two and six football team right now trying to find ourselves, trying to find our footing, you know. Um, you know, the nice thing about coming out of the bye is we should get a bunch of guys back on the football field. And then we'll see how we do from there. Yes, we will. And then Ron, in the final answer that he gave at his postgame press conference, said the following. Yeah, I'm frustrated. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. Again, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're better than two and six, I'd be elated. Okay, but I, I'm, I'm not. I'm disappointed. Um, I think we've missed some opportunities. I think there's some things that we can be better at. I know there are things that we can be better at. I shouldn't say think. I know there are things we can be better at. Okay? It's the same. There, there's a lot of the same guys that played last year, and there's a lot of the same coaches that coached last year. And we'll see what happens. Okay, we still got, we still got nine left to play. Anything's possible. That's true. Anything is possible, but not everything is probable. And no, things are not going well for Washington right now. Well, we always hope that things are going well in your life, but we know that it's not always the case that things are going well in your life. Bad things happen, and I want to let you know about a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged. Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through, big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers and has just tried two cases in D.C. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people, smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you say, hey, heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. It's the front five. My five biggest takeaways off the Washington football team falling to two and six with a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. Takeaway number three, Taylor Heineke. He was not awful, but he was not good enough to win. You know, there were things to like about Heineke's performance, but ultimately he quarterbacked a team that scored just 10 points, went just five of 14 on third downs, went just one of five on fourth downs, and went 0 of 2 in the red zone against a Broncos defense that was struggling and was missing multiple key players. So the Broncos through week seven of the season were number 26 in the NFL in total defense for football outsiders. 
DVOA metric. This talk that was out there of, oh, this Broncos defense is so good. No, it's not. At least that had not been the case going into the game on Sunday. And the Broncos were missing multiple key guys. The Broncos defense for this game was without edge rusher Von Miller due to an ankle injury, was without interior defensive lineman Mike Purcell due to a thumb injury. Both of those players were inactive in addition to other key defensive players, including edge rusher Bradley Chubb being on the Broncos reserve injured list. And yet the Washington offense wasn't good. And Taylor Heineke was the quarterback for that Washington offense. And for the record, Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference did not dismiss the notion of benching Taylor Heineke. First of all, here was Ron on if he's seeing the progress from Washington that he wanted to see. Well, I, I, I've seen some things that you know that are positive. I've seen some things that we got to get better at, obviously, and and that's the big that's the big thing we got to figure out is um, going forward. Is 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 you know where are we? That's what the nice thing about having this bike is. This bias, we'll get a chance to reevaluate, take a look at a lot of things, and kind of come out of uh, next week feeling about uh, where we think we're headed. Okay, and then Ron was asked if quarterback is one of the positions that Ron will be evaluating during the bye week. Yeah, I'm going to evaluate all 20-whatever uh, all uh, positions you have. All right. Well, Taylor Heineke in the loss at the Broncos went 24 of 39 for 270 yards. That works out to 6.92 yards per pass attempt. That's not very good. Uh, he had a touchdown pass. He had two interceptions, although the two interceptions were two sort of desperation heaves that I don't really pin on Heineke as like, oh, those were terrible picks or anything like that. Uh, he took five sacks, including a sack strip. He had one carry for 10 yards. He was charged with another fumble for failing to catch a shotgun snap. The bad from Taylor Heineke. So to me, you start with the five sacks, including the sack strip. They certainly weren't all on Heineke, but he took multiple costly sacks. Washington's third offensive drive resulted in Chris Blewett's second quarter 52-yard field goal that tied the game at three. The ninth snap of the drive and the snap right before the field goal on a third and six for Washington at the Broncos 29. Taylor Heineke took a sack for a five-yard loss, severely damaging Washington's field goal range. Now, Blewett ended up making the field goal try, but that's not the point. Washington's fourth offensive drive started with 111 left in the second quarter, resulted in one of those Taylor Heineke interceptions. The sixth snap of the drive on a third and three at the Broncos 36 with 23 seconds left in the second quarter. Taylor Heineke did not catch Tyler Larson's shotgun snap, and the result was Heineke getting sacked by edge rusher Stephen Weatherly for a 10-yard loss that took Washington out of field goal range. Very costly occurrence there. Washington's eighth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's fourth quarter interception, his second interception of the game. The 10th snap of the drive on a third and six for Washington at the Broncos seven with Washington down 17-10. Sadiq Charles got beat by edge rusher Malik Reed for a sack strip of Taylor Heineke that Charles Leno Jr. recovered. Was there anything that Heineke could have done better or differently realistically on that play? Tough to say, but you know what? At least hold on to the football. Heineke did not do that there. Washington's ninth offensive drive started at the Broncos 24 with 21 seconds left in the fourth quarter and Washington trailing 17-10 thanks to running back Melvin Gordon's late fourth quarter lost fumble 
that was forced by Chase Young and recovered by David Mayo. But the drive resulted in a turnover on downs. The second snap of the drive, Sadiq Charles beaten by edge rusher Malik Reed again, this time for a second and 10 sack of Taylor Heineke for a six-yard loss. I get that it was difficult to avoid that sack, but that was a killer sack for Heineke to take in that spot. Uh, Heineke was off on some throws. Washington's third offensive drive resulted in the Chris Blewett second quarter 52-yard field goal that tied the game at three. Seven snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke threw the football too far in front of Jared Patterson on a first and 10 shotgun play action in completion on a screen. Washington's seventh offensive drive resulted in Chris Blewett's fourth quarter blocked 47-yard field goal attempt with the game tied at 10. The fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke threw way wide of Terry McLaurin on a second and six shotgun incompletion on a screen that certainly seemed as if it could have resulted in a big gain. Washington's ninth offensive drive, the one that started off the Melvin Gordon late fourth quarter loss fumble, this drive resulted in a turnover on downs in the end of the game. The fourth snap of the drive, the final snap of the game, fourth and 16 at the Broncos' 30. Taylor Heineke threw the football out of the end zone on a deep shotgun incompletion on a desperation Hail Mary heave. I get that the probability of that play resulting in a touchdown is low, but at least throw the darn football in the end zone, dude. He threw the football out of the end zone, literally giving Washington zero chance of a miracle late game touchdown. Uh, I mean, come on, man. Throw the football in the end zone. Uh, that was a bad throw. I mean, it, it sounds odd, right? A Hail Mary desperation heave. You're going to charge a guy with a bad throw. That was a bad throw. He threw the football out of the end zone. Now, the good from Taylor Heineke in this game, he was great on Washington's lone touchdown drive. There was only one touchdown drive. Heineke was good on that drive. This was Washington's sixth offensive drive, resulted in Heineke's late third quarter, first and 10, 20 yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to DeAndre Carter, who beat corner Bryce Callahan in man-to-man coverage. Heineke threw a perfect pass. The ensuing extra point tied the game at 10. Also for Heineke on this drive, four snap, Taylor Heineke's second and 10, 14-yard shotgun play action completion to J.D. McKissick on the screen. The seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a third and two, 23-yard shotgun completion to Adam Humphreys. I thought that Heineke largely did a good job of being a distributor and throwing to the right guys in the game. Washington's eighth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's fourth quarter interception, his second interception of the game. The first snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a first and 10, 19-yard shotgun completion to J.D. McKissick on the screen. The fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a third and five, 22-yard shotgun completion to Dax Milne. The seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a third and six, 14-yard shotgun completion to DeAndre Carter. Uh, I mentioned Heineke only having one official carry. That's true, but I did not think watching the game, like there were a ton of opportunities for Heineke to run. Like I didn't feel like Heineke was turning down chances to run. Maybe the tape will reveal something different, but I thought Heineke did a good job in terms of deciding, you know, to throw the football, who to throw the football to, when to throw the football. It didn't seem like he was late on his throws. The lone official carry that he had was a good one. Washington's first offensive drive was the first offensive drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter turnover on downs. The fifth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a second and eight, 10-yard shotgun play action scramble up the A-gap. And when it came to the Heineke interceptions in the game, Again, I don't really pin those on Heineke and say, oh, geez, he had two interceptions. Both of Heineke's interceptions 
or on desperation, Hail Mary heaves. Heineke had a fourth and 13 deep shotgun interception in the end zone on a Hail Mary throw on the final snap of the second quarter, so the end of the first half. Heineke had a fourth and 19 shotgun interception in the end zone on a Hail Mary throw in the final minute of the fourth quarter. So not all interceptions are equal. I think it's debatable whether especially a Hail Mary heave at the end of a half should even count as an interception for a quarterback. I mean, I guess you have to account for it somehow. But yeah, two interceptions, but I don't really make a big deal out of those for Taylor Heineke. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, the offensive output is not good enough. And while, yes, there were multiple good moments, plenty of good moments, in fact, for Heineke in this game, at the end of the game, you're looking at 10 points scored. You're looking at Washington going 5 of 14 on third downs. You're looking at Washington going 1 of 5 on fourth downs. You're looking at Washington going 0 of 2 in the red zone. And all of this against the Broncos defense that A, hasn't been very good this season, and B, was missing multiple key players. That's not good enough, okay? That is not good enough in the NFL in 2021. And the question with a guy like Haneke is, well, is the offense not good enough because he's still learning? Or is the offense not good enough because this is just who he is as a quarterback? And we've already kind of maxed out on what Taylor Heineke can be. I thought this was interesting regarding Washington's quarterback situation. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference on Sunday evening, got asked if he now regrets having not traded up in the 2021 NFL draft to take a shot at a young quarterback. Here was Ron's answer. No, that's hindsight. That's easy to second guess. You know, I made a decision. I'm going to go with it. Just like the kicker. I made a decision. I told you guys that's on me. Okay, we made a decision going forward on the quarterback. You know, we, uh, we like a couple of guys. You know, we, we, we're not going to mortgage the future because if we can put the pieces in place and then find the guy, we'll feel better than, that, than having to give up some of the capital that people wanted from us. Yeah, I wasn't going to give up some of the players people wanted. I was going to give up some of the draft picks people wanted. All right, interesting to hear that. I don't have a problem with Ron's answer there, so long as a big part of Ron having not traded up in the 2021 NFL draft to take a quarterback was that Ron didn't truly love who he would have been trading up for. Because at the end of the day, there is no price that is too high for a franchise quarterback. There just isn't. Now, that doesn't mean that you call up teams saying, we'll pay whatever it takes, right? But in the back of your mind, when you need a franchise quarterback, there really isn't a price point at which you say, no way will I pay that price for a franchise quarterback. You don't not trade up for a quarterback in the first round because the price is too high. You don't trade up for a quarterback in the first round because you don't truly believe in that quarterback being a franchise quarterback. So in other words, you don't trade up for a Justin Fields or a Mac Jones because you don't truly believe that either guy will prove to be a franchise quarterback. And if you think that way, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think there are reasons, plenty of reasons to think that both of those guys will prove to not be franchise quarterbacks. You know, don't take the big swing unless you truly believe in for whom you are swinging you just better be right in your evaluation, okay? Because Washington seemingly could have traded up for Justin Fields, could have traded up for Mac Jones, chose not to, and now we are where we are with Washington 
at the quarterback position. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways on the Washington football team off it falling to two and six with a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. Takeaway number four, Washington's defense was mixed in this game, but this still marked an eighth time in eight games for Washington this season that the team's defense wasn't good. You still cannot say that Washington's defense has been good in any game this season, and I'm not saying that for this game, okay? Washington allowed the Broncos to go 7 of 13 on third downs. This was another game in which Washington's defense got carved up on third downs. Washington now this season has allowed opponents to go 56.5% on third downs. Dead last in the NFL. Washington's opponents are 65 of 115 on third downs this season. The Broncos' first offensive drive did result in a first quarter punt, but the third snap of the drive, Washington gave up a third and one four-yard shotgun handoff run to running back Melvin Gordon. The seventh snap of the drive, Benjamin St. Juice, who got picked on in this game, got beat by receiver Cortland Sutton on a Teddy Bridgewater third and three, 31-yard shotgun completion to Sutton. The Broncos' sixth offensive drive started late in the third quarter, resulted in Brandon McManus's fourth quarter missed 53-yard field goal attempt. The sixth snap of the drive, Chase Young in pass coverage was slow, very slow, to tackle running back Javante Williams on a Teddy Bridgewater third and eight, 11-yard shotgun completion to Williams. Uh, why Chase Young is ever in pass coverage, I don't understand, but that was not a good moment for Chase Young. The Broncos' seventh offensive drive resulted in running back Melvin Gordon's fourth quarter third and two, seven-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run on which James Smith-Williams failed on an attempted tackle. Ensuing extra point gave the Broncos a 17-10 lead. So a third down conversion there. The fourth snap of the drive, Danny Johnson got beat by receiver Jerry Judy on a Teddy Bridgewater third and eight. 18-yard shotgun completion to Judy. So more problems for Washington on third downs this season. Uh, Washington this game allowed Broncos quarterback Teddy Bridgewater to complete 19 of his 26 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of 73.1. Washington allowed Bridgewater to throw for 213 yards on those 26 pass attempts. That works out to a yards per pass attempt of 8 Point one nine. Washington allowed seven Bridgewater completions that were each at least 15 yards. None of those things are good, people, okay? So don't get seduced by what well, Washington only gave up 17 points. That's good, okay? And I'll get to some of the good, but there was a lot of bad for Washington defensively in this game. The Broncos didn't have the ball a ton, but when the Broncos had the ball, the Broncos moved the ball. And yes, Washington was without, in theory anyway, its top corner in William Jackson the third. He was inactive for a second consecutive game due to a knee injury. But that's not why Washington's pass defense struggled again. Okay, we all know that. We all know the season that William Jackson the third is having. Washington gave up some big passing plays in this game. Uh, the Broncos' second offensive drive resulted in Brandon McManus's second quarter 45-yard field goal for a 3-0 Broncos lead. I mentioned Benjamin St. Juice getting picked on in this game. The third snap of the drive, St. Juice got beat by receiver Tim Patrick on a Teddy Bridgewater first and 10, 31-yard under center 
play action completion to Patrick. The Broncos' third offensive drive resulted in Teddy Bridgewater's late second quarter, first and 10, 15 yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Melvin Gordon, who beat Kalik Hudson in coverage. And Hudson then failed on an attempted tackle, ensuing extra point gave the Broncos a 10-3 lead. So you had that play. You also on the drive had the drive's fist snap. This was the final snap before the first half two-minute warning. Washington gave up a Teddy Bridgewater first and 10, 19-yard under center play action completion to tight end Albert Okuwebunam on a shallow crossing route. And then on the sixth snap of the drive, Benjamin St. Juice beaten again, uh, beaten by receiver Tim Patrick on a Teddy Bridgewater first and 10, 19-yard under center play action completion to Patrick. Uh, Washington allowed the Broncos to go 2-2 in the red zone in the game. Washington went 0-2 in the red zone. The Broncos went 2-2. You had the Teddy Bridgewater late second quarter, first and 10, 15-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Melvin Gordon. You had the Melvin Gordon fourth quarter, third and two, seven-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. Broncos perfect in the red zone. Uh, Washington had some bad defensive penalties in this game. The Broncos' sixth offensive drive resulted in Brandon McManus's fourth quarter missed 53-yard field goal attempt. The third snap of the drive, the first snap of the fourth quarter, Jamin Davis, a 15-yard roughing the passer penalty for a helmet-to-helmet hit on Teddy Bridgewater on a second and 12 nine-yard shotgun completion to receiver Jerry Judy. I mean, I think we like the aggression from Jamin, and Jack Del Rio did say a few weeks ago that he wanted Jamin to just play. Well, you know, I mean, that comes with at least somewhat of a restrainer of don't hit a quarterback helmet to helmet like that for an obvious penalty. Uh, the Broncos' first offensive drive did result in a first quarter punt, but the fifth snap of the drive, Montez Sweat committed a second and eight five-yard neutral zone infraction penalty. So, Bad stuff from Washington's defense on Sunday. Now, there were good things. Again, Washington's defense was mixed in this game. This was not some, like, wretched performance by Washington's defense. Uh, Washington did hold the Broncos to just 17 points and to just 5.4 yards per play. Those numbers are good, okay? I mean, you hold a team to 17 points, you should win the game. These most recent Washington losses, uh, these losses are more on the offense than the defense. Let me make that clear. These last two Washington losses in particular are more on the Washington offense than the Washington defense. You could maybe even argue the last three. You could maybe include the loss to the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field in week six in that mix as well. So the last three, if you want to say more on the Washington offense than the Washington defense, that's fine. Again, that doesn't mean that the Washington defense has been lights out. But you held the Broncos to 17 points. You held the Broncos to just 5.4 yards per play. Uh, I thought Washington pressured Teddy Bridgewater pretty well. Uh, Washington uh, did sack Teddy Bridgewater four times in the game. James Smith-Williams had a sack in the game. Landon Collins had a sack in the game. I tell you, Landon looked pretty good in this new role of uh, in-the-box downhill player. Don't say linebacker, okay? Ron Rivera will not say linebacker, but uh, Landon playing more in the box and more as a downhill player, and he had himself a sack in this game. Now, he did come in unblocked on the play, so I mean, you know, let's be honest about what the play was, but uh, Landon Collins on the Broncos' second offensive drive, the one that resulted in the Brandon McManus second quarter 45-yard field goal. Fifth snap of the drive, Landon came in unblocked for a second and eight sack of Teddy Bridgewater for a six-yard loss. Landon also had another big tackle for a loss 
uh, in the game. Broncos' fifth offensive drive resulted in a third quarter three and out. Third snap of the drive, Landon Collins tackled running back Melvin Gordon for a four-yard loss on a Teddy Bridgewater third and one under center completion to Gordon. Collins read the play beautifully. You love seeing that. Uh, Jonathan Allen had himself another sack in this game. The Broncos' seventh offensive drive. This did result in the Melvin Gordon fourth quarter, third and two, 70-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. But the second snap of the drive, Jonathan Allen ran through the Broncos center Lloyd Cushenberry III. Uh, that sounds like someone who's a member of the royal family. Lloyd Cushenberry III on a stunt for a first and 10 sack of Teddy Bridgewater for a seven-yard loss. Love seeing something like that. And Washington did generate a big late fourth quarter takeaway. Now, this was Washington's only takeaway of the game, but this could have been a near miracle finish if Washington is able to convert on the ensuing offensive drive. But on the Broncos' eighth offensive drive, third snap of the drive, on a third and nine for the Broncos at their 23, while they're trying to run out the clock with a 17-10 lead with less than a minute left in the fourth quarter. Chase Young forced a fumble that David Mayo recovered on a minus two yard under center handoff run by running back Melvin Gordon. I mean, this was like a gift from the football gods and this was a really nice play by Chase Young. Let's give him full credit. What was funny was that the first snap of the drive was a first and 10 one yard under center handoff run by running back Javante Williams, who is a bear to bring down. But he lost the football at the end of that play, was not charged with a fumble, but you kind of had this feeling of something maybe is going to go wrong here for the Broncos. And sure enough, something did go wrong. Unfortunately, Washington did nothing on the ensuing offensive drive. Uh, Washington also had a shot at a takeaway very early in the game. Broncos' first offensive drive did result in a first quarter punt. Sixth snap of the drive, Bobby McCain dropped a gift of an interception on a Teddy Bridgewater second and three under center in completion. I mean, that ball was thrown right to McCain. He had the football, and then he dropped the football for whatever reason. You wanted to scream if you're a Washington fan at that moment. So just one takeaway in the game for Washington. Well, Washington may have only had one takeaway. I, though, have five takeaways during the front five, and here is takeaway number five. Ron Rivera releasing Dustin Hopkins in favor of Chris Blewett right now is a disaster. Yes, Ron Rivera, at least right now, you blew it with Chris Blewett. You blew it! Yes, as Adam Sandler said, you blew it. So for the record, my stance was never that Washington had to release Dustin Hopkins, who as most of you know has signed with the Los Angeles Chargers. My stance was that it was ridiculous how loyal Washington had been to Hopkins for years given his mediocre track record and how ridiculous it was that Hopkins wasn't even challenged in training camp off all of this talk about competition. But I always acknowledged that Washington could do worse than Dustin Hopkins. And right now, Washington is doing worse than Dustin Hopkins. So Chris Blewett in this loss at the Broncos in just his second game for Washington and in just his second career NFL regular season game went one of three on field goal attempts. His two misses were blocked field goal attempts, leaving him just two of five on field goal attempts as a Washington kicker with all three 
misses being blocked field goal attempts. Uh, The guy has a bit of a problem when it comes to having his field goal attempts blocked. Blewett on Sunday had an early second quarter blocked 45-yard field goal attempt. Now, he did connect on a second quarter 52-yard field goal that tied the game at three. 50-plus-yard field goals were a bit of an issue for Hopkins. So this is so funny to me. Blewett is either like a killer or he just gets demolished in terms of having the field goal attempt blocked. It feels like it's feast or famine with Chris Blewett right now. Because remember, his other make as a Washington kicker was a 45-yard field goal in the fourth quarter, although that came in what was basically garbage time in the 24-10 loss at the Green Bay Packers in Week 7. But then Blewett in this game on Sunday had another field goal attempt block. The fourth quarter blocked 47-yard field goal attempt with the game tied at 10. Blewett in the loss at the Packers went 1-2 on field goals. He had that made field goal in the fourth quarter, the 45-yarder, but he had a second quarter 42-yard field goal attempt. That was blocked. Again, the guy over two games as Washington's kicker is 2-5 of on field goal attempts. All three misses have been blocked field goal attempts. That's a problem. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference on what he saw from the sideline on the two blue and block field goal attempts. Well, one was low, obviously. The other one, uh, I thought there was a little bit of the operation. So we'll see when we get a chance to look at it on tape. Okay. Ron later got asked whether he intends to try out kickers during Washington's bye week. Um, as I said, we're going to evaluate all the positions, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, you get the feeling this could be a Billy Cundiff situation where the new kicker ends up not lasting for very long. We went through this, you may recall, with Billy Cundiff during his also brief tenure as a Washington kicker in 2012, and we may be in the midst of going through this right now with Chris Blewett. We shall see. Look, I get Ron Rivera releasing Dustin Hopkins. What I never have gotten is Ron releasing Dustin Hopkins in favor of Chris Blewett. Chris Blewett had never kicked in an NFL regular season game. He had not kicked in a competitive football game since the 2016 college football season. Understand, Chris Blewett was a kicker at Pitt from 2013 through 2016. This isn't some guy who was in college last season or like two years ago. No, he was in college five years ago, and he really wasn't that good as a college kicker. Chris Blewett, over his final two seasons at Pitt, 2015 and 2016, went just 25 of 40 on field goals. So, I don't really get it with this guy. I mean, seems like a good guy. He's a local. You know, he's from Northern Virginia. Uh, has a strong leg. He did make a 52-yard field goal on Sunday, so he's got ability. I mean, I understand that, but geez, three of his first five field goal attempts have gotten blocked. That's a problem, and that wasn't happening with Dustin Hopkins. Whatever you want to say about old D-Hop, it's not like he had a problem of his kicks getting blocked. Uh, That had not been an issue with Dustin Hopkins. So there you go. The front five, my five biggest takeaways of the Washington football team falling to two and six with a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. Takeaway number one, the month of October 2021 goes down as one of the worst months in Washington football history. Takeaway number two, the Washington football team needs to aggressively sell players on expiring contracts 
regarding this Tuesday's NFL trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern. Takeaway number three, Taylor Heineke was not awful, uh, but he was not good enough to win. Takeaway number four, Washington's defense was mixed in this game, but this still marked an eighth time in eight games for Washington this season that the team's defense was not good. And takeaway number five, Ron Rivera releasing Dustin Hopkins in favor of Chris Blewett right now is a disaster. Things can change, but right now, that's where we stand. Up next, much more on Washington office loss at the Broncos, including a brutal day in multiple ways for Washington's offensive line. And what was up with all of the carries that Jarrett Patterson got over Antonio Gibson. Hey guys, Al Galdi here. Washington football team season continues and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. And so if you're looking to watch Washington live this season, get your tickets at TickPick.com slash Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. Whether you're looking to see Washington take on Tom Brady and the Bucks at FedEx Field on November 14th or want to make the trip to Vegas to watch Washington play at the Raiders on December 5th or want to hit up any of Washington's five NFC East games over the final five weeks of the regular season, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. No more of those ridiculous service fees. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K dot com slash Galdi. That's TickPick.com slash Galdi. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. We continue post-gaming a, another loss for the Washington football team. Washington now 2-6 and six off a 17-10 loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. The losing streak is at 4. Washington now has its Week 9 bye week. Then in Week 10, Washington is home to Tom Brady and the reigning defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That'll be a 1 o'clock game at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon, November 14th. So let's talk about what's going on with Washington's offensive line. Washington's injury-ravaged offensive line took a beating on Sunday. And this is actually starting to get close to 2017 territory in terms of how depleted Washington is becoming along the offensive line. We'll have to see what the injury updates from this game end up being. But you start with Washington beginning the game by remaining without the right side of the team starting offensive line and being down the team's second string right tackle. So Brandon Sheriff was inactive again on Sunday. He was inactive for a fourth consecutive game due to a knee injury, uh, what is a reported sprained MCL that was suffered in the win at the Atlanta Falcons in week four. I don't know about you. I've had it up to here with Brandon Sheriff not being healthy. And I understand he's not doing this on purpose, okay? I don't consider Brandon Sheriff to be soft, but I do consider him to be brittle, okay? He is hurt a lot. He misses a lot of time. Brandon Sheriff now has missed 20 games since the start of the 2018 season. So he, since the start of the 2018 season, has played in just 36 of a possible 56 regular season games. That's 65.3% of Washington's games. People never talk about Brandon Sheriff as being in that Jordan Reed, you know, Chris Thompson territory of missing a ton of time. Brandon Sheriff is in that territory. Again, it's not to say that it's his fault or that he's tanking it or anything like that, but this is just the way it is. He's always hurt. Every season, he misses time, and it's happening again this season. There was optimism that he would play on Sunday. He ended up not playing on Sunday. And of course, with Sheriff, it's not just about his availability. It's also about his contractual status. He's playing this season under the terms of a second consecutive, not exclusive franchise tag tender. He's making 18 plus million dollars this season. Good for him. I don't begrudge any athlete for making as much as he or she can make. But the point is, you're paying a lot of money to someone who has missed four of your eight games, who has missed half of your games so far 
this season. Samuel Cosme was inactive on Sunday for a third consecutive game. This due to an ankle injury that he suffered in the loss to the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field in Week 5. And Cornelius Lucas, who had started Washington's previous two games at right tackle in place of Cosme, was inactive due to illness. So before the game even kicks off, you are sans sheriff sans Cosme and sans Lucas. Washington's starting offensive line from left to right was Charles Leno Jr., Eric Flowers, Chase Rullier, Wes Schweitzer, and Sadiq Charles. Yes, there was a Sadiq sighting on Sunday. Uh, The sighting was not pretty. Then you throw into the mix that two other Washington offensive linemen got injured. Chase Rullier suffered a nasty-looking left leg injury in the second quarter. He was carted off the field while wearing an air cast. Now, the team called the injury an ankle injury. We don't know anything beyond what we saw. It certainly did not look good. Uh, Chase Rullier was taken by Washington in the sixth round of the 2017 NFL Draft, and he has been not only a really good center, but a very reliable center in terms of availability. Chase Rullier has been an anti-sheriff in Rullier's NFL career. Chase Rullier became Washington's starting center beginning with the 2018 season. He, from the start of the 2018 season through Sunday, had started 54 of a possible 56 regular season games. So in the same time span in which Brandon Sheriff has started just 36 of a possible 56 regular season games. Chase Rullier has started 54 of a possible 56 regular season games. It would appear, though, as if Rullier is about to miss time. And Eric Flowers may be about to miss some time because he got hurt on the first snap of Washington's final offensive drive of the game. It's funny, looking back on that gift of an extra offensive possession for Washington off the late fourth quarter, lost fumble by running back Melvin Gordon off the force fumble by Chase Young and the recovery by David Mayo. A, the ensuing Washington offensive drive resulted in nothing, but B, Eric Flowers got hurt on that drive. You might have been better off having never had that offensive drive. So, you're minus Sheriff, Cosme, and Lucas to begin the game. You lose Rullier and Flowers during the game, and Washington during the game allowed five sacks and the offensive line had two killer penalties. Washington's second offensive drive started in the first quarter, resulted in Chris Blewett's early second quarter blocked 45-yard field goal attempt. The 11th snap of the drive and the second snap of the second quarter on a third and six for Washington at the Broncos 22, Sadiq Charles committed a five-yard false start penalty. Washington's fifth offensive drive was Washington's First offensive drive of the second half resulted in a third quarter punt. First snap of the drive on a first and 10 for Washington at its eight. Wes Schweitzer committed a four-yard holding penalty, negating a Taylor Heineke 15-yard completion to Ricky Seals-Jones. That was painful. Uh, Washington's eighth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's second interception. This one, the uh, desperation Hail Mary heave into the end zone in the final minute of the fourth quarter on a fourth and 19 shotgun throw. The 10th snap of the drive on a third and six for Washington at the Broncos seven with Washington trailing 17-10. Sadiq Charles got beat 
by edge rusher Malik Reed for a sack strip of Taylor Heineke that Charles Leno Jr. recovered. And then we saw Sadiq get torched by Malik Reed on Washington's next offensive drive. This one starting at the Broncos 24 with 21 seconds left in the fourth quarter off the Melvin Gordon loss fumble. The result of the drive ends up being the turnover on downs to end the game. Second snap of the drive, Sadiq Charles beaten by Malik Reed for a second and 10 sack of Taylor Heineke for a six-yard loss. Not a good game for Washington's offensive line, both in terms of injury and overall performance. And this is getting rough here in terms of who is actually available for Washington. This bye week is actually coming at a good time when it comes to Washington's offensive line. Another aspect of Washington's loss at the Broncos that I want to get into, Jarrett Patterson and not Antonio Gibson being Washington's leading rusher. Now, it's all relative with something like this because to me, when you talk about running backs, it's really more about touches than it is about carries. And when it comes to touches, J.D. McKissick is the man right now, okay? J.D. McKissick has been really good for Washington this season, just like J.D. McKissick was really good for Washington last season. And McKissick in this game on Sunday Eight receptions for 83 yards on eight targets. He ended up leading Washington in receptions, receiving yards, and targets. Now, McKissick only had three carries for 10 yards, but we know the deal with J.D. McKissick by now. He's as much, if not more, of a pass catcher as he is a ball carrier. So if you're talking about like running back usage, running back touches, J.D. McKissick is the number one back here in terms of what went down on Sunday. But when you just look at pure carries, Antonio Gibson had eight carries for 34 yards. Jarrett Patterson had 11 carries for 46 yards. Uh, Gibson, eight carries, 34 yards, three receptions for 20 yards on three targets. We all know that Gibson has been dealing with this ailing shin, but it's worth noting Antonio Gibson did not have an official injury status for this game. And it's also worth remembering Antonio Gibson came into this game having had what? four fumbles over Washington's first seven games of the season. So you're being naive if you don't at least wonder, well, did Jarrett Patterson get the bulk of the carries because of Antonio Gibson's ailing shin? Well, like I said, Gibson did not have an official injury status for this game. Or did Patterson get the bulk of the carries because Antonio Gibson has had a fumbling problem so far? this season. Now, Gibson did not fumble on Sunday. I thought Gibson looked pretty good in this game. Not necessarily very good, but he had some nice runs in the game. But I thought Patterson looked good too. Uh, Jarrett Patterson, again, 11 carries for 46 yards. He had no receptions on one target, but he had some nice runs. You look at Washington's lone touchdown drive. Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's late third quarter, first and 10, 20-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to DeAndre Carter. Second staff of the drive, Jarrett Patterson, a second and six, seven-yard shotgun handoff run. Ninth staff of the drive, Jarrett Patterson, a second and five, 13-yard under center handoff run. Uh, Washington's third offensive drive resulted in Chris Blewett's second quarter, 52-yard field goal that tied the game at three. Fifth snap of the drive, Jarrett Patterson had a fourth and one, one-yard shotgun handoff run. Uh, Washington's second offensive drive resulted in Chris Blewett's early second quarter blocked 45-yard field goal attempt. The fifth snap of the drive, Jarrett Patterson, a first quarter, first and 10, five-yard 
under center handoff run. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference on whether Patterson getting so much work was about Gibson's shin or about Ron wanting to see more of Patterson. A little bit of both. You know, just trying to be, be, be smart going into this uh, with, uh, with Antonio. And um, it did give us an opportunity to see Jarrett. Okay, and here was Ron on how he felt Patterson did. I thought he did some good things. He led us in rushing for the most part. Um, you know, but again, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, we, we, we've, got, uh, we've got a good group of backs. We've got some guys that we've got to get the ball in their hands. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes when we get out of, this, out of, the, uh, out of the bye. Yes, we will. It was a shame how infrequently Terry McLaurin touched the football in the loss at the Broncos. Terry finished with just three receptions for 23 yards on seven targets. The only really notable reception that he had, Washington's second offensive drive resulted in the Chris Blewett early second quarter blocked 45-yard field goal attempt. Fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a first quarter second and eight 17-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. You did have that Taylor Heineke misfire to McLaurin. Uh, this coming on Washington's seventh offensive drive, the one that resulted in Chris Blewett's fourth quarter blocked 47-yard field goal attempt. Fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke threw way wide of Terry McLaurin on a second and six shotgun completion on a screen that seemed as if it could have resulted in a big game. Washington again was without Curtis Samuel. He was inactive for a third consecutive game and unavailable for a sixth time in eight games this season due to this nagging groin injury, a.k.a. the groin injury from hell. Uh, Diami Brown was inactive for this game due to a knee injury. It's been well established, but it bears worth repeating. Washington's offense has been crushed by injury over these last few weeks. I mean, it's not just an offensive line thing. It's almost like an across-the-board thing for Washington offensively. So many key players have missed games. Uh, some guys have barely played this season. When you think about it, you know, Curtis Samuel and Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, Cam Sims had missed each of the last three games due to a hamstring injury. He was back on Sunday, had one reception for 20 yards on two targets. Uh, the reception Coming in the second quarter, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 20-yard under center play action boot completion to Cam Sims on a screen on Washington's third offensive drive, which resulted in Chris Blewett's second quarter 52-yard field goal that tied the game at three. I do want to give props to DeAndre Carter, three receptions for 51 yards and a touchdown on six targets. That touchdown catch was really nice. I mean, it was a great throw by Taylor Heineke, but DeAndre Carter beat corner Bryce Callahan in man-to-man coverage and then made a really good over-the-shoulder catch. This on the Taylor Heineke late third quarter, first and 10 at 20-yard shotgun play action, touchdown pass to DeAndre Carter. Uh, DeAndre also had a big catch on Washington's eighth offensive drive, which resulted in Taylor Heineke's second interception of the game, that uh, fourth and 19 shotgun interception on a desperation Hail Mary heave into the end zone in the final minute of the fourth quarter. Seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a third and six, 14-yard shotgun completion to DeAndre Carter. Uh, DeAndre also made a nice catch on Washington's fourth offensive drive, resulted 
in Taylor Heineke's first interception of the game, that fourth and 13 deep shotgun interception into the end zone on a Hail Mary throw on the final snap of the second quarter. The second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a second and nine, 17-yard shotgun completion to DeAndre Carter, who made a nice sliding catch in the middle of the field. DeAndre Carter drew a penalty in the game. Washington's second offensive drive resulted in Chris Blewett's early second quarter blocked 45-yard field goal attempt. The second snap of the drive, DeAndre drew a second and 10, 15-yard face mask penalty on former Washington corner Ronald Darby. So some good stuff from DeAndre Carter in the game. He did have a drop in the game. Uh, Washington's first offensive drive of the second half resulted in a third quarter punt. Second snap of the drive on a first and 14 for Washington at its four. DeAndre Carter had a drop on a Taylor Heineke shotgun play action incompletion. But I thought overall a good game for DeAndre Carter, but clearly not enough good for Washington offensively. The Washington football team over its last three games now has totaled, has totaled 33 points, okay? And while, yes, Washington was playing at a pretty pedestrian team in the Denver Broncos on Sunday, Washington's two previous opponents, uh, not pedestrian opponents, at least not offensively, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in Week 6, Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers in Week 7, and that Washington has totaled 33 points over the last three games. That's not good enough in any form or fashion. Things need to change, okay? Things need to improve. Things need to be better. And that's not just like a long-term thing. That's an immediate-term thing. I can't believe that this Washington offense is this bad and that this is truly just what this offense is this season. Now, I get it. It's tough right now. Washington is missing a lot of key guys. That's true. But still, 33 points over the last three games. I mean, the New York Jets on Sunday scored 34 points in a 34-31 win over the Cincinnati Bengals with Mike White throwing for 405 yards and three touchdowns versus two interceptions. If the Mike White quarterbacked New York Jets can put up 34 points in a single game against a good Cincinnati Bengals team, why the heck can't our team score more than 33 points over the last three games? All right, let's talk Wizards, as in the Eastern Conference leading Wizards. Yes, you heard that right. The Eastern Conference leading Wizards. Our team is leading the Eastern Conference. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A., that team, our team, the Wizards, the New York Knicks, the Chicago Bulls, and the Miami Heat. Each team is 5-1. and one. The Wizards are at the Atlanta Hawks Monday night at 7.30, and the Wizards are coming off having improved to 5-1 and one with a 115-112 double overtime win over the Boston Celtics at Capital One Arena on Saturday evening. What a game that was. What a start this is 
for the Wizards. The Wizards' 5-1 and one start is their best six-game start to a regular season since going 5-1 and one to begin the 2005-2006 regular season. I cannot emphasize this enough. The Wizards routinely get off to awful starts to seasons. The Tony Kornheiser joke for years of the Wizards being 9-20, and 20, that's based on the Wizards traditionally getting off to horrendous starts to seasons. Well, not this season. Wes Unsell Jr. is doing an outstanding job as Wizards head coach, and the Wizards are finding ways to win. Look, this win over the Celtics on Saturday evening was not pretty, but so what? Personally, I'm not concerned with style points right now, not with how many guys the Wizards are without. So the Celtics on Saturday evening were without Marcus Smart due to illness, but the Wizards were without multiple key players, remained without multiple key players. Daniel Gafford did not play for a second consecutive game due to a right quad contusion that he suffered in the 116-107 win at the Celtics. Last Wednesday night, the Wizards remained without Rui Hachimura, who has yet to play this season. He missed the start of Wizards training camp due to personal reasons, and the Wizards remained without Thomas Bryant as he continues to recover from a season-ending partially torn left ACL that was suffered this past January. And this game against the Celtics at Capital One Arena on Saturday night was bonkers. Uh, The Wizards overcame a six-point deficit in the first overtime. The Celtics scored the first six points in the first overtime. The Wizards scored the last six points in the first overtime. The Wizards had a bizarre game defensively. On the one hand, the Wizards held the Celtics to just two of 26 on threes, continuing the Wizards' great three-point defense to begin this season. But on the other hand, the Wizards allowed the Celtics to go 42 of 81 on twos and got outscored in the paint by 20, 66-46, In fact, West Jr. during his postgame press conference said, quote, our paint defense has been terrible, end quote. Uh, Also terrible was the Wizards shooting. Uh, The Wizards on Saturday evening won despite going just 10 of 36 on threes and just 28 of 68 on twos. Uh, Like Davis Berton struggled on threes, just two of nine on threes and 21-37 off the bench. Spencer Dinwiddie struggled on threes. He went just one of seven on threes, but the Wizards made enough plays to win the game. Bradley Beal went three of eight on threes, nine of nine on free throws. Did go just nine of 24 on twos, but Beal finished with 36 points, seven rebounds, six assists versus four turnovers and two steals in 46-10 as a starter. Two big layups after regulation for Beal. He had a big jump stop and hanging layup that tied the game at 109 with 25.9 seconds left in the first overtime, and Beal had a huge go-ahead driving layup for a 113-112 Wizard lead with 107 left in the second overtime. I mentioned Spencer Dinwiddie only going 1-7 on threes. That's true, but he finished with 20 points and 9 assists versus 1 turnover in 39 minutes, 47 seconds as a starter. Dinwiddie has been so good so far this season at racking up assists, but not producing turnovers. He's like the anti-Russell Westbrook in that regard, and Dinwiddie had a big bucket on Saturday evening. A big stop and pop 14-foot jumper from near the left block to extend the Wizards' lead to 115-112 with 20.6 seconds left in the second overtime. Montrez Harrell continued to produce. He started for a second consecutive game with Daniel Gafford out for a second consecutive game. And Harrell had 20 points on 6-14 of shooting and 14 rebounds, including five offensive boards 
in 35 minutes, 4 seconds as a starter. Speaking of rebounding, Kyle Kuzma is like Dennis Rodman so far this season for the Wizards. So Kuzma on Saturday evening, 2 of 4 on threes, finished with 17 points, but also 17 rebounds to go with two blocks in 47-57 as a starter. Kyle Kuzma is averaging 11.8 rebounds per game so far this season. And Contavious Caldwell-Pope. So here's like a perfect example of what's happening here with the Wizards. So KCP only went 1-5 from the field, including 0-2 on threes. He scored just two points in 41 minutes, 24 seconds as a starter. But the Wizards' defense, by and large, has been good this season. And Contavious Caldwell-Pope has been a part of that. And he, on Saturday evening, made the defensive play of the game. With seconds left in the second overtime, and the Wizards nursing a three-point lead at 115-112, Contavious Caldwell-Pope blocked Jalen Brown's 29-foot three-point attempt from well beyond the top of the arc and got the rebound to preserve the Wizards' win. Now, if you watch the game, the sequence looks more like a steal, but whatever. It went down as a block and a rebound for Contavious Caldwell-Pope, but a huge defensive moment in the game. So yeah, he struggled shooting. Yeah, he only had two points in 41 plus minutes of playing time as a starter, but Contavious Caldwell-Pope, part of another at least solid defensive effort for the Wizards. You know, there was some nuance to it. Like I said, the paint defense left some things to be desired, but Contavious Caldwell-Pope coming through late in the game. I tweeted this shortly after the Wizards win over the Celtics on Saturday evening. I can't remember feeling this good about a Wizards team this early in a season. I mean that. Now, who knows what this team ends up being? It's so early in the season. The NBA season is so long. You know, this Wizards team is far from perfect. Let's be clear about that. But there is a lot to like with this Wizards team right now. All right. Well, good times for the Wizards right now and some good times for Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Navy in college football week nine. Yes, week nine ended up featuring the Terrapins, Hokies, and Midshipmen all winning. Uh, imagine that. Uh, we begin with the Terrapins. They improved to five and three, a 38-35 win over Indiana at uh, Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium in College Park on Saturday afternoon. Big win for the Terps. Uh, the win snapped a three-game losing streak for the Terps off their 4 no start to the season. The win is key to the Terps getting to six wins this season because you look at what's ahead for the Terps on their schedule. After this game, four games left now in Maryland's regular season. Home to number 20 Penn State at number eight Michigan State. Home to number six Michigan and at Rutgers. Uh, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that Maryland's history against ranked Big Ten teams is brutal. Well, each of the next three games is against a ranked Big Ten team. And then after that, you only have one regular season game left, and that game is at Rutgers. So this was a big win from the standpoint of getting to six wins. Uh, this win was a big win from the standpoint of the game being the Terps' homecoming game. You know, you think about it, a loss in this game and to a team in Indiana that came into the game just 2-5 and five this season would have been an awful look for head coach Mike Loxley. There are a lot of people right now who are doubting whether Loxley is the man to turn this program around. And, you know, the results this season off a very good start to the season have been really bad lately. To have lost this game to IU would have been a terrible look for Loxley. Thankfully, Maryland did not lose this game. Now, all of that said, this was not a pretty victory for the Terps. So the Terps blew a 14-0 first quarter lead, and the game was in doubt until basically its end. 
The Terps allowed Indiana true freshman quarterback Donovan McCulley to throw for 242 yards and two touchdowns versus no interceptions on just 25 pass attempts, 9.68 yards per pass attempt. The Terps allowed Indiana running back and USC graduate transfer Stephen Carr to have 21 carries for 136 yards and two touchdowns. That's 6.48 yards per carry. Yeah, Maryland's defense was not good at all in this game. And you look at Maryland's running game. So the Terps' top two running backs, Chalin Famatau and Teon Fleet Davis, did combine for three one-yard rushing touchdowns. So that'll skew your yards per carry. I get that. But those two guys combined for just 84 yards on 37 carries, 2.27 yards per carry. So a lot did not go well for the Terps in this game. But someone who did go well for the Terps in this game was their starting quarterback, to Leah Tungavailo. He had struggled during the three-game losing streak. He was much better in this game. And against an Indiana team that actually hasn't been that bad on defense. Uh, Talia on Saturday afternoon, 26 of 40 for 419 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took just two sacks. He quarterbacked a Maryland offense that went 7 of 15 on third downs. Now, if you are a Maryland fan, you know that the program has struggled forever when it comes to high-level quarterback play. Talia, in throwing for 419 yards, became the first Maryland quarterback to throw for at least 400 yards in a game since Danny O'Brien threw for 417 yards in a 38-31 win over NC State in College Park on November 27th, 2010. Yes, it had been nearly 11 years since a quarterback for Maryland threw for at least 400 yards in a game. I mean, in college football these days, throwing for 400 yards is impressive, no doubt, but it does happen. I mean, it's not like it's unheard of, okay? I mean, if you're a Virginia fan, Brennan Armstrong, it feels like every week is throwing, or at least teasing throwing for 400 yards. Maryland had not had a quarterback throw for at least 400 yards in a game since Danny O'Brien in late November 2010. That really captures the extent to which the Terps have struggled from a quarterback play standpoint for years now. But Talia threw for 419 in this game. He had a third quarter, second and 11, 14-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to receiver Carlos Carrier, who caught the ball at about the IU 10 and then plowed through an IU defender and route to the end zone. Talia had a fourth quarter, first and 10, 45-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to Carrier, who was wide open at about the IU 40, made a man miss and then ran into the end zone. Yet Carrier had a big game. You know, the Terps are without two key receivers right now. Dante Demas Jr., Jay Sean Jones, each guy done for the season due to a season-ending leg injury. But the Terps in this game got major production from the receiving core. Carrier finished with eight receptions for 134 yards and two touchdowns. Receiver Rakim Jarrett had five receptions for 88 yards. Receiver Marcus Fleming had four receptions for 70 yards. The Terps needed this win badly, and they got it. Mike Loxley during his post-game press conference. You know, as I just told the team, uh, you know, it definitely wasn't a pretty win, but but we'll take it. Um, you know, we needed it. Our players deserved it. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of things to still get cleaned up from it, but it's always good when you can clean mistakes up uh, with a victory. You know, I'm proud, about, proud of how our guys fought and stuck together. Uh, this week, they really worked hard this week, and we continue to challenge them each and every day as coaches. And like I said, I feel like they deserve the win. Um, you know, we always know that it's, we prepare for a four-quarter game, uh, and today it was. Now, it didn't have to be, but it was. 
and we found a way to make the plays, whether it was on our the, the four-minute drive with the offense going up two scores with the field goal, whether it was the hands team finishing on the field there. Uh, give credit to Tom Allen and in Indiana. Uh, I know they're banged up, and those guys fought till the end, and, and, and that's what the Big Ten's all about. Um, we need to build off this win. Obviously, we've got an opponent coming in next week that, that we know all too well. Um, it's a great opportunity for us to kind of go back to neutral, refocus, um, and like I said, welcome Penn State into the shell, and, and hopefully you know, we can get our fans out here to help come support uh, next week to try to help us get to number six. Yes, uh, the Terps host number 20, Penn State, this Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The Nittany Lions played Ohio State tough on Saturday night, ended up losing at the number five Buckeyes, 33-24. Penn State now has actually lost three consecutive games. Well, Virginia had won four consecutive games until late night on Saturday night. Cavaliers fell to 6-3, and three, a 66-49 loss at number 25, BYU. Yes, the final score of this game was 66-49, and this was a football game, not a basketball game. Bronco Mendenhall was Virginia's head coach for this game, not Tony Bennett. The same Bronco Mendenhall, by the way, who was BYU's head coach from 2005 through 2015. This was yet another game for the Cavaliers this season. That was like drunk, okay? I mean, Virginia has played multiple games like this game on Saturday night. So if you're a Virginia fan, you're kind of used to this by now. But the two teams on Saturday night combined for 115 points. The Cavs overcame a 21-0 first quarter deficit. The Cavs won the second quarter 35-17. The Cavs lost the fourth quarter 21-0, and the Cavs lost the game despite scoring 49 points, amassing 588 total net yards of offense and averaging 9.2 yards per play. Virginia put up video game numbers offensively again, and yet Virginia lost this game and the Cavs lost because their defense was a joke. I mean, the Wahoos defense is atrocious this season. The Who's allowed BYU to score 66 points, put up 734 total net yards of offense and go 6 of 11 on third downs. And I mentioned the third downs not so much because the efficiency was high for BYU, 6 of 11, but because BYU put up 66 points, racked up 734 total net yards of offense and had just 11 third down opportunities. It shows you how much BYU was moving the football on first and second downs. And how about this? The who's allowed BYU's stud running back Tyler Algier to have 29 carries for 266 yards and five touchdowns. Yes, Tyler Algier against Virginia's porous defense had 29 for 266 and five touchdowns. That's 9.17 yards per carry. Now look, Algier is one of the best running backs in the country. Algier through week nine is number three in the FBS in rushing yards at 1,132 and is number one in the FBS in rushing touchdowns with 16. So he is a freak. That is true. But what's also true is you can do better than allowing Algier to run through you to the tune of 29 for 266 and five touchdowns. But I tell you, maybe the most notable item from this game is that UVA quarterback Brendan Armstrong got hurt. Uh, This is a big deal, and this is a major worry right now if you're a Cavs fan. So Armstrong suffered a rib injury in the fourth quarter, did not 
return to the game. He went 22-34 for 337 yards, four touchdowns and two interceptions, took just one sack, had 11 carries for 94 yards and two touchdowns. Armstrong has been outstanding this season. He threw week nine, is number one in the FBS in passing yards at 3,557, is number 13 in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR at 77.7, and has 27 touchdown passes versus eight interceptions. Uh, But we just don't know what his status is at this point. True freshman Jay Wolfolk served as UVA's quarterback for the rest of the game. The good news is that next up for Virginia is a bye. Uh, Virginia's next game isn't until Saturday, November 13th, but UVA on that day will be home to number 11 Notre Dame. So you got some time to rest up and heal up until the next game, but your next opponent is a top 15 opponent. Uh, But man, this game Saturday night was something else. But the game kicked off past 10 o'clock, right? So this was a late night affair and it was just whacked out. You know, Cavs receiver Dontavian Wicks, four receptions, 125 yards and a touchdown on seven targets. Uh, Cavs receiver Keaton Thompson, nine receptions, 91 yards and a touchdown on 10 targets. Also at five carries for 23 yards. I think maybe my favorite stat line, though, for Virginia belongs to the running back Devin Darrington, the graduate transfer from Harvard who went to Bullis School in Potomac, Maryland. Devin Darrington on Saturday night had just two carries a 49-yard touchdown run, and an 11-yard run. So two carries, 60 yards for Devin Darrington. All kinds of whacked-out stats from this game. Like I said, this game was drunk. Well, if you are a Virginia Tech fan, you probably have been drunk, or at least have wanted to be drunk during Tech games this season. Hokies, though, got themselves a win on Saturday afternoon. Virginia Tech improved a 4-4, 26-17 win at Georgia Tech. So do not fire head coach Justin Fuente uh, just yet. There is a pulse to this Hokies team. Look, Georgia Tech isn't that good, but neither have been the Hokies. And I didn't expect Virginia Tech to win this game. So good for the Hokies for coming through with the victory. Hokies snapped a three-game losing streak, one for just the second time in six games since the 2-0 and start to the season. Hokies led at the half 27, entered the fourth quarter with a 23-17 lead and held on for the win. Now, the Hokies' defense in this game was mixed. The uh, Hokies did hold Georgia Tech to just 17 points and just 3-12 on third downs. You love that. But the Hokies allowed Georgia Tech running back Jameer Gibbs to have 11 carries for 113 yards and four receptions for 48 yards on five targets. And the Hokies allowed Georgia Tech quarterback Jeff Sims to have 11 carries for 60 yards. And that includes the lost yardage on two sacks. So Virginia Tech's defense left quite a bit to be desired, I thought. Although at the end of the day, you give up only 17 points. You hold the opponent to 3-12 on third downs. That does put you in a position to win. And Virginia Tech did win. And Virginia Tech won thanks to its starting quarterback. Hokies quarterback Braxton Burmeister, who has not had a good season, did have maybe his best game of the season on Saturday afternoon. 15-25 for 254 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took just two sacks. He had 11 carries for 46 yards. And again, that includes a lost yardage on the two sacks. And Burmeister quarterbacked a Virginia Tech offense that went 9 of 18 on third downs. Two big first quarter touchdown passes for Burmeister. He had a first quarter third and eight, 69 yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Trey Turner, who caught the ball at about the Georgia Tech 43, then broke through multiple attempted tackles and route to the end zone. And Burmeister had a first quarter fourth and one four-yard pistol play action boot touchdown pass to receiver Tavion Robinson. Uh, Trey Turner had a big game, seven receptions, 187 yards and a touchdown 
on 12 targets. The Hokies ran the ball well for a second consecutive game. Hokies running back Malachi Thomas, 25 carries, 103 yards. Hokies running back Raheem Blackshear, 14 carries, 83 yards. And the Virginia Tech kicker delivered. Uh, John Parker Romo, 4-5 on field goals. And the miss was a forgivable miss. Uh, John Parker Romo missed a 53-yard field goal attempt late in the third quarter. So what does this win mean for Virginia Tech? What does this win mean for Justin Fuente? Maybe not much, okay? But at least it's something. I mean, at least you know that the Hokies aren't going to say lose out, which off the loss to Syracuse the previous Saturday, you thought was maybe in play here. Uh, Next up for Virginia Tech at Boston College this Friday night at 7.30. And playing this past Friday night was Navy, which got itself a win. Uh, Navy improved to 2-6 and with a 2017 win at Tulsa on Friday night. Game was tied at three at the half as neither team was doing much offensively, but the midshipmen's offense came alive in the second half and their triple option rushing attack, which really has not been that good this season, ended up having easily its best game so far this season. The mids finished with 302 total net rushing yards and two touchdowns on 60 carries. That's 5.03 yards per carry. The Mids had zero net passing yards in the game. So every yardage of offense for Navy was a rushing yard. Uh, Slotback Corlinos AC had three carries for 80 yards, including a big second at eight, 64-yard under center toss triple option run in the final minute of the second quarter on a drive that resulted in a game-tying field goal. Slotback Chance Warren had 10 carries for 70 yards. Navy's quarterback Ty Lovatai, 18 carries, 64 yards and a touchdown, 0-3 passing with no interceptions, and he took no sacks. Uh, Mids went 7 of 15 on third downs. And maybe most tellingly, just in terms of this Navy triple option rushing attack finally finding itself this season, the Mids dominated the time of possession battle. And that's maybe the biggest reason that Navy utilizes this triple option rushing attack. The Mids won the time of possession battle in this game by 14 minutes, 36 seconds. That is the Navy football that we have become accustomed to over the last nearly 20 years now, first under head coach Paul Johnson and more recently under head coach Kenny Amatololo. I'll tell you something else. Navy's defense was good. Uh, Navy held Tulsa to just 17 points, just 4 of 11 on third downs. Uh, Navy linebacker Johnny Hodges had a big sack strip for a fumble that Navy recovered on a first quarter third and eight for Tulsa at the Navy 20. And Navy safety Rayon Lane, a massive end zone interception in the third quarter as he on a second and 10 for Tulsa at the Navy 16 with the game tied at 10, made a really good diving catch of the football off it having been juggled by the intended receiver. Mids did have another major screw-up on special teams. Navy special teams have not been good this season. Mids in this game gave up a 97-yard kickoff return by Tulsa running back Anthony Watkins for a touchdown to begin the second half. But the midshipmen got the victory, got to 2-6 and six on the season. Next up for Navy at number 11, Notre Dame, this Saturday afternoon at 3.30. All right, well, we talked Wizards earlier in the show. They're off to a great start to their regular season, and so too are the Capitals. The Caps will be at the Tampa Bay Lightning Monday night at 7. The Lightning has won the last two Stanley Cup titles, so a good test for the Caps, who lost to the Lightning 2-1 in overtime at Capital One Arena on October 16th. But the Caps are 5-0-3. They have gotten at least a point in each of their eight games so far this season, including a 2-0 win 
over the Arizona Coyotes at Capital One Arena on Friday night. Now, the Coyotes are bad, really bad. Uh, Coyotes with that loss fell to 0-7-1 to begin this season. But the Caps did what a good team should do against a bad team, right? Caps won. Uh, Caps were without their fourth line center, Nick Dowd. He did not play for the second time in three games due to a lower body injury. Ilya Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender for just the third time at eight games this season, and he pitched a shutout. Now, he was not tested a ton, but, you know, sometimes it's actually harder for a goaltender when he isn't tested a ton. Samsonov faced just 16 shots on goal the entire game. He stopped all 16 of those shots on goal. Samsonov, per natural stat trick, stopped all four of the high-danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped all seven of the medium-danger shots on goal that he faced, and stopped all five of the low-danger shots on goal that he faced. Caps finished with 32 shots on goal to the Coyotes' 16. So the Caps doubled up the Coyotes' in terms of shots on goal. And although both of the Caps' goals came in the third period, the Caps really walloped the Coyotes in the first period. Caps in the first period had 14 shots on goal to the Coyotes' four, and per natural stat trick had seven high danger, five-on-five shot attempts to the Coyotes' one. Alex Ovechkin had another really good game. He had a third period even strength empty net goal. He had the secondary assist on defenseman John Carlson's third period power play goal. Ovechkin had a game high five shots on goal and had a game high 11 shot attempts. Did commit a second period cross-checking minor, but we can forgive that. Ovechkin is off to a great start to his season. Evgeny Kuznetsov on Friday night had the primary assist on each of the Caps' two goals. He's off to a very good start to his season. Remember, the Caps have been without Nicholas Backstrom for all eight of their games this season due to his ongoing rehab for his hip, and yet still, the Caps have gotten a point in each of their eight games so far this season. Caps special teams were at least pretty good for a second consecutive game. Uh, Caps went 1-6 on the power play, 3-3 on the penalty kill. Now, the Caps had to keep chipping away on the power play, but they, in the third period, finally came through with that John Carlson power play goal. Just as the Caps as a team have been coming through to begin this season. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 179, will feature plenty more on the Washington football team off it falling to 2-6 and six with this 17-10 Loss at the Denver Broncos on Sunday. We'll have Ron Rivera's day after the game press conference on Monday to go through. Also, all post-game Monday night's games for the Capitals and the Wizards. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I think this team's still trying to search and find itself more than anything else. You know, um, that's where we are.